And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We're in our, our extended version of Guide Talk, and we're going to jump right back in. We're going to waste no time. I thought it was real interesting, gentlemen. I've got uh, Dr. Uh, Peter Kapsner, Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Justin Jepson. That's the power panel today. Right before we went to break, Lucy from Crookston was asking us about using the words like gosh and golly and heck, and was that a form of swearing? And then uh, what about the, the, like, holy cow? And a listener, Jim, who is just a a big fan of uh, Jim, he said, uh, he goes, I have problems with this as well because only God is holy. What do you guys think? Holy yeah, cow or I, holy I think... Toledo, is that okay to say, or is that bad, too? Yeah, I'm from Toledo. Let's be careful. <laughs> I want to start saying it more, then. Yeah. You know, I, holy cow I, I, I tend to... I think holy cow is taken from sure. Hinduism because they, ha- they have holy cows. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't like to use the word holy unless I'm really meaning it. Okay. Good for you, Tom. Uh, Tom Brock. Yeah. Anyone else? Well, I, I was I was going to say, you know, I think it's, you know, on one hand, it's importantly not to be overly dogmatic about this, in my opinion. However, I think it's really important to be very intentional about the words that we use. You know, I, th- I think it's Proverbs twenty three eighteen says, "Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and and uh, and those who eat, love it will eat of its fruit." And so, I think we. I think we got to even just ask, why would I say that? What am I trying to convey? What emotion am I trying to in, uh, communicate, you know, and what's the purpose behind me saying that? And I think it's really important, you know, that we, that we have certain words that we reserve for, for God himself. You know, and you think, of course, you know, the, the, the Israelites wouldn't even say Yahweh out loud. They wouldn't even write it. Scribes wouldn't even write it when they would transfer, when they copy manuscripts, they would write they would have an underline because they, they didn't want to do anything to profane the name. And they had such a high regard for the holiness of God's uh, revealed name and his character. And I, you know, and honestly, for me, I, I, I do this with the word awesome because, you know, scripture talks about, you know, how, how awesome are his works and God, that God is awesome, that I, I am in awe of him. And I think there's certain words that sometimes we throw around so flippantly. And I think we got to be really careful and intentional and biblical about the words that we use that are that are connected to or closely related to who God is and his character. So. Yeah, I think among Christian leaders, we have to really hold one another accountable to our language, and we all mm-hmm. slip and make mistakes. With non-believers or nominal believers, I think it's a trap of Satan when we suddenly want to start saying to them, oh, you can't say that or you can't do that, because we're not putting it in the context of why they're not, why they shouldn't say it, and instead... Like with my friend uh, when I graduated from uh, when I went to my class reunion, you got to find a way to walk around it and get them to really start talking about the real things. So it's both and, and and I'm always willing to be held accountable. But with those that are marginal or not Christian, um, I won't even talk the topic to them. We're going to talk about other things. We're going to talk about, you know, what their purpose is in life or how they feel about their life and where they're going Mm -hmm. eternity. Mm hmm. All right, let's jump into this passage, gentlemen, from 1 Corinthians, and it is in verse 12, and the listener would like to know what this means. I'm going to start in verse 21 and just read three verses. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. 
But God has put the body together, giving great honor to the parts that lacked it. Yeah, I think we'd we'd probably need a good uh, hour or two to really kind of unpack that passage. I, okay. I would, I would uh, suggest, but I think uh, to start with, what, in, whenever you look at a, a letter of Paul's that he wrote, I think it's really helpful to understand that Paul was not sitting by the Mediterranean seashore just trying to think of stuff to say for a theology book. Like he was actually addressing certain circumstances in whatever church to which he was writing. So that's why we have the letter to the Ephesian church, and we have the letter to the Galatian church and Colossian church, and in this case, the first letter uh, of several to the Corinthian church. There's two in the biblical text, but there is more letters written to the Corinthian church as well. And when he's writing these letters, it's because he had spent some time in those cities and helped build those churches up, and then he continued to travel around the Mediterranean world doing just that city by city, and every once in a while, he would take a messenger who would give him a, a report of what was going on at a previous church. And so in this case, he obviously got some kind of message from the church in Corinth, and he wrote this letter. And one of the primary things that was happening in the city of Corinth that prompted this letter was that people were coming from a wide variety of backgrounds into the church. It, it really was a city of bustling commerce. It, uh, it was located on a six-mile-wide strip of land between two pretty major bodies of water. So you could actually sort of picture a Pirates of the Caribbean town, and, and, you, and you would have a pretty good handle on what Corinth was like. And there was a ton of competition going on in the church, and they were always trying to one-up each other in mm -hmm. terms of who is the most important member of the church and, and then fragment themselves from one another. It was, it was a church filled with unbelievable division. And, and frankly, I think it's a prophetic book, uh, even for today's day and age, in terms of how often the, the church can be divided over sort of silly things, and, and especially trying to say who's better, who's not. So I say all of that to say that he, chapter 12 is part of a, of a two-chapter uh, lengthy discussion that Paul enters into about the importance of remembering that we are all bonded together in the body of Christ. And, and if people are in weak times in their life, or maybe they're struggling with some kind of sin, or there, there's some other form of weakness going on in their life, you can't just dismiss them and say that you're somehow better than them and, and lord over them and be arrogant and, and, uh, and, and cast them aside. We're, we're in this whole thing together. And, uh, and that person who's weak, uh, this to, uh, during the season could easily be me next season of time. And you, you can't just say, oh, we don't need that or we don't need this or my way is all that we need. You really have to all be together. And, and there, there's a lot more that could be said, but I think one of the one of the great struggles that happens with churches these days, when, and I think it's such an invitation, is to this idea of mutuality, meaning that we actually do consider another person's thoughts about a situation or about what's going on uh, as much as we might our own, and, and to see that we really only have one viewpoint out of all the viewpoints that are possible in sort of this beautiful tapestry of God's kingdom. And uh, and I think churches would do really well to get through some of the power struggles that can at times be part of churches and divisions that can be at times part of churches if they learn to, to truly listen to each other. And that's on all sides of the conversation. That's liberal to conservative, conservative to liberal. And, and we've had a lot of conversations like Guy Talk where, where clearly there are behaviors and teachings that are not to be part of the church. So th those are things that you don't dialogue with. But I think more often than not, you know, when we start dividing over whether we should play the drums or the timpani or the organ, um, it's, it's probably helpful to, to have a bit of mutuality in that. And that's what the Corinthian church was lacking insofar as I understand it. Good uh, word. And that's really smart. And when you look at chapter 12, starting at verse 4, it looks like they're battling over spiritual gifts. 
who has the greater gift? Which one is more powerful? I remember at age 22, my wife and I were at a Christian concert, and we both gave our life to the Lord at that concert. Unbeknownst to one another, uh, they asked us to stand, and I did, not even thinking about her, and received Jesus. Six months later, I went into a Christian friend who I was in a Bible study with, and he said, well, how'd you come to Jesus? And I said, well, I was at a concert, and they gave the invitation, and I repented of my sins, and I asked Jesus into my life. And he said, and then did you speak in tongues? And I said, no. Then you're not a Christian. There was some of that problem even in the Corinthian church at that time because we want to elevate things. We want to take and create hierarchies. And I learned a long time ago, and he, he's a wonderful man. He's, he's kind of come around on that, but he's a wonderful guy. The bottom line is I know lots of people. You know, they speak in tongues. What amazed me is when I was over in Bangladesh and elsewhere, people there who were not Christian spoke in tongues. So, you know, there's a battle going on here. What's the battle we're missing? The battle is commitment to Jesus. And that's what the Corinthians were missing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think, uh, you know, at the verse 25, it kind of gets, there's that purpose clause of that. You know, what, what what's the purpose of this, of, of Paul saying this? You know, he... He says, so that there's no division, which are, Peter, in both, you know, you're talking about that already, no division in the body, which then means, in other words, the purpose is unity. But he says, but that members may have the same care for one another. If one member yeah. suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And I think I think this also speaks to, to a great amount of our identity. You know, I, um, you know we, I think when we view our identity, and Paul using the phrase, you know, in Christ upwards of 300 times throughout all of his letters— you know, uh, as a way to convey our unity with Christ. But I think he's he's also here talking about our, our we are not individually just unified to Christ. We are also in, in, in dependent upon him. We're also yeah. um, together unified with the body So and, and unified with other members. And so um, I think it's important to remember, you know, that we our connection to the body and our role in it is is significant, and it, and it assigns the value and the worth by God, not by what member of the body and sense we occupy, or what gift we have, to, to Tom's point. And so um, for us to have the same care for one another, for us to suffer together, and I think this really points to the aspect of that we ha- we're a part of a global body of Christ, and theologians have you know, talked about the seen church and the unseen church or the universal church in that sense of, I'm connected to brothers and sisters in Christ whom I will never physically maybe even encounter, but I, I'm able to see them and by, by, by way of making connection or communication. And if someone's hurting in Bangladesh, even I will never see them, but if I know that I can actually have an actual reaction and hurt and hurt along with them, you know? And so I think it's, you know, that idea, you know, when you, you know, when you're a kid and you, maybe you skin your knee and you don't really realize that there's pain until you see it. And once you yeah. see it, the pain comes. Yep. It's, it's that idea that we need to see one another and our connectedness to one another so that we actually feel and experience the same thing. And I think that's one of the integral pieces that helps foster the unity. That is the very thing that Jesus said is going to put him on display to let the watching world know that he's real by looking at a church that's unified. All right, let me give My- you guys a word of encouragement before we go to break. Just got a nice note from a listener. Love Guy Talk. I'm a millennial. I'm a mom of four. Our family loves Faith Radio. Your hopefulness is so refreshing. Thank you for all that you do in Jesus' mighty, precious, perfect name. Wow. Isn't that nice? That's amazing. So grateful. Amazing. We'll Thank take a little you. break. Yeah. We'll be back with Guide Talk in 90 seconds. 
We're back with Guide Talk. Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Paris, Justin Jepson, and Peter Kapsner is the power panel today. Gentlemen, thank you again for all being here for zero compensation. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. You know better than that. Oh, I'm sorry. Pick up a complimentary pen on the way out. Ready a t-shirt or hand sanitizer bottle, maybe? Yeah, there's a little squirt you can get on the way out. Anyway. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay, this this panel all grew up, and we heard about power in the name of Jesus, right? There's power there. Salvation 412 says, salvation is to be found in him alone. In all the world, there is no other name by which you can be saved. So we're talking about power. So with so much power in the name of Jesus, should we or should we not be seeing more healing and miracles today? Or do we see a lot of them? Your thoughts? Well, you know, I, Bill, I, you, I actually, you, you invited me at one point, I remember, uh, into an episode with um, theologian and, and biblical scholar Craig Keener, and, and he's somebody yeah. that I really trust in terms of his views and, and his research and what he's done. And, and he really blew me away in that episode when he talked about what's happening globally. And I believe he has a book coming out, correct? If it's he not does. out already, something about miracles. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, wh- whenever that is available, I'd highly recommend it. Uh, it certainly does not fit into my own experience and background in the church, nor does it fit into my theological paradigm. Not, not And I'm not, I, I absolutely believe in miracles and healings. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is I was taught much more about theology and the meaning of Scripture, for which I am terribly grateful. Uh, all the way down to my toes, I'm grateful for that. But I did not grow up in any kind of environment or tradition where I felt like the trustworthy exercise of the potential gifts of miracles uh, and healings was represented. And I say trustworthy because it doesn't mean that some of those things weren't represented, but they always kind of rubbed me wrong in my spirit somehow. It always... I don't know what felt amiss or askew, and I'm and I'm guessing some of the other guys in the panel maybe have had some similar experiences, and some of our listeners too. There just wasn't something quite right in in the pursuit of these things, and and even potentially the expressions of them. But just because I've had that kind of experience, I would not at all take away from the idea that these things are still possible, um, that they happen all the time, all over the world, and I, I think it's a matter of just opportunity and and not really having been apprenticed into this kind of way of life. Clearly, Jesus expected his disciples in the, in the, uh, in the Gospels to be able to exercise this kind of power. I, one of my favorite stories mm-hmm. is after they've been training with him for a while, Jesus, they send him into a village and tell him to basically heal the sick and cast out demons, and, and they come back and they're like, Jesus, we, we've got absolutely nothing. Like we, we weren't able to do anything that you can do, and, and it was part of their training process, and over time, we read the stories that they're clearly able to do those things. So I think it's a worthwhile mm-hmm. conversation to not throw the baby out with the bathwater on on whether these things are possible. You know, if you've had the chance... Go ahead, Tom. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I just think we need to make room for God to do miracles in our church. And for most churches, you go there, you sit, you sing, you hear the sermon, and you leave. And so what we started doing years ago, and I'm so glad we did. In fact, I was talking to a... A, a newer pastor, and I encouraged him to do that is this at his church. At the end of each service, you say, um, anybody here need prayer for any reason, a daughter that's gone astray or you've got cancer or whatever, there will be people at the front of the church after the service uh, to pray for you and to talk with you. And And so we started mm-hmm. doing that regularly, and it just touches your heart to see people come up, get on their knees, 
get prayer from people. And whether a miracle happens or not, at least they're able to talk to somebody about it. And I think, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, James chapter 5 about getting the anointing with oil by the elders. I I went to a church and said, could I get this? And first of all, this church had no elders. And it was like almost it was almost like this was not on their uh, on their um, planet to to pray mm-hmm. over someone and anoint them with oil. So I, I think, you know, I, I would encourage people if you're going to a church and your pastor hasn't done it, just encourage them to say, look, pastor, I'm willing to be up front and pray for people at the end of the service. And could we get some elders uh, uh, too if people need uh, anointing with oil? Could we have some of them available after the service? Because we need to make, I, I'm guessing, Peter, when you were talking about God doing all these miraculous things overseas, maybe that's because their services last for three hours and they've got all <laughs> kinds of interpersonal relationships going on instead yeah. of just, you know, in one hour we're out the door and you don't Agreed. say hi to... I think it's so even anyway, simpler just, than that, Tom. You know, I've Agreed. had the privilege as a pastor, my church has sent me all over the world, never to a five-star hotel. Tom, you'll have to tell me what those are like someday. <laughs> But they would send me to live in mud houses, dung houses, out in the middle of the jungle, things like that. Here's what I discovered. You go to an American church, and although we're Trinitarians, and I'm very strong on that, we rarely use the name of Jesus in the local church. We talk about God a lot, talk about Christ a lot. Rarely use the name of Jesus. And the Bible is pretty emphatic on where the power is. Overseas, they're Trinitarians too, but they use the name of Jesus. They use it on the demonic, they use it on healing, they use it a variety of ways. And like the book that's coming out, you see a lot of miracles. In my ministry, for what it's worth, when I began to use the name of Jesus properly, more and more as I prayed over people and did things, I began to see more and more miracles. The church here has to get back to Jesus and not be so ethereal that we only talk about God in a generic sense. Yeah, agreed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... Uh... And I think using the name of Jesus in the right way, there's power, right? I mean, there's. I'm thinking of the, the seven sons of Sceva and 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 Acts. You know, that try to exercise demons by using the name of Jesus, and there's power and recognition there. But they say, well, Jesus, we know, Paul recognized, but who are you? You know, <laughs> yeah. and I think the the, yeah. the power the power in using Jesus' name is arises out of an authentic, yes. real relationship based upon what we talked about at the very beginning, believing yeah. in Jesus and the words that He said. And I know I know we're getting uh, short on time here, Bill. But this is a this was a this is a really kind of a personal journey for me of you know uh, learning. Really, I mean, the Trinity for me growing up was the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. I didn't really know yeah. much of the Holy Spirit <laughs> until um, I experienced the, the miraculous healing in the in someone who had the gift of healing uh, personally and and with a, a friend of mine when I was on a trip to Guatemala when I was in college mm. and. And I think it sent me on a journey going back into the scriptures to seek to confirm my experience. And I really discovered, I mean, to this listener's specific question, should we be seeing God's power at work? I mean, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, First Corinthians one eighteen that the cross is the, you know, it's the power of God, um, or the gospel, Romans one eighteen is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And I think on one hand, we need to never forget that the greatest miracle is someone coming from death to life, the greatest miracle of salvation. And, and any other miracle of physical healing, of dry, casting out a demon, of raising the dead, that that needs to point to the greatest miracle of that person being rege- their heart being made new and regenerated. And 
I mean, there are certainly crazy signs, right? I mean, there were scarves that, that were brought from, you know, Peter and Paul and then the, the shadow casting on them. And there are signs and wonder because they're truly signs that make you wonder. But it really, the sign is, is meant to point us to the Savior. And so I yeah. think if the miracle doesn't point us to a saving faith and relationship in Jesus, then, then we're missing the point. But, but certainly, as Ephesians 1 says, that, I mean, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, the same power that was worked when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And I believe it was A.W. Tozer said that if we have the same power that raised Jesus that, from the dead living in us, surely the world ought to take notice. Yep. Do you, I don't know about you guys, do you feel a push inside like I do that America has heard the gospel faithfully from Billy Graham and a host of other people? Matter of fact, most atheists can present the gospel better than most Christians I've discovered. They know all the right things. They just don't believe it. I think you look at the chaos, you look at the rioting, you look at the problems going on in this country. You know, we all say we need Jesus, but I think we need a display of his power in ways we've mm-hmm. never seen before that will really get people's attention, both believers and non-believers. So we fall to our knees and we say, my Lord and my God, and we repent. Yeah, I, that, was, that was one of the primary purposes of such expressions of power in the book of Acts, Tom, that was there, that, that it was a verification that this, that this salvation that was extended to the Jews was also going to move into the Gentiles. And it, it broke apart their theology to be able to say, wait a second, the Gentiles have never been able to be part of this deal, and yet the exercises of power on behalf of the Gentiles allowed their entire sh- uh, thinking to shift on on what was possible. So yeah, I think those displays of power, when they're undeniable in those ways, they really do lead uh, pretty profoundly to repentance, not just in the biblical times, but but at other times in theological history of the church. Yeah. Right. So if, if this wasn't my job, I would want to listen to this segment. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So thank you so much, gentlemen, for doing the uh, the extended play version of Guy Talk. Uh, it really has been uh, wonderful, and we're, time is up. So, wow, that went fast, wow. didn't it? Thank, thank you, you for having us, Bill. Tom Brock, have a good, good time in the Black Hills, and hopefully we can uh, reconvene in a week. Okay. Thank you Thanks. so much. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Bill. We'll take Thanks, a little, thank you. little break. When we come back, Dr. Jeff uh, Barrows will be with me. He's from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. We'll be right back. Jeff Barrows is my guest from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. I'm excited to meet him. This is his first time on the program. Jeff, welcome. Bill, thank you for having me on this evening. Yeah, where where do you live? I live in Ohio, rural Ohio, a little northwest of Columbus. Uh, that's where I practiced for many years in obstetrics and gynecology. Okay, so it's 630 your time? Yes, it is. And you've already had dinner? I just finished a little bit ago, yes. What did you have? Spaghetti. Nice. That sounds good because I'm hungry right now and I'm looking for ideas. <laughs> so you're you're being very helpful. Now you are um, an OBGYN doctor. That's correct. And you are also the president for bioethics and public policy 
at the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Senior Vice President. Nice. I like titles. That's a good one. All right, let's talk about uh, what happened recently with this judge's injunction um, against the FDA's safety precautions on the abortion pill. Yeah, it was a real shock to me. I knew that there were a lot of uh, forces, Planned Parenthood and others, that were trying to get the restrictions that the FDA have put into place uh, for this medication and put in place for very good reason. But I was unaware of this court case until it was decided a little over a week ago uh, by the District Court of, of Maryland. And in essence, what they did is they uh, they put aside some of the most important restrictions on this medicine uh, to allow it to be prescribed by uh, telemedicine. And uh, I'm, I'm afraid mm. that that's going to increase the risks to women that are taking it. Wow. So this is a pill that they can get through telemedicine, which will be basically ending their pregnancy. Correct. Correct. Wow. The medication has been around since about 2000, uh, and it's it's been associated with some significant uh, adverse effects and even deaths, and that's why the FDA put these additional restrictions on it. But uh, apparently a, a judge, a federal judge in Maryland says, well, this is not really all that important. And uh, he, he took away the in-person prescribing requirements and allowed it now to be prescribed over telemedicine. All right, Jeff, as an OBGYN doctor, I would love your, I mean, your understanding of how truly dangerous this is, not to mention the death of the fetus, of course, which is horrific, but... Um, the also the risk to the to the the woman. Yeah, I I would say start by saying that even before these additional requirements were put on, and and they are known in the medical world as an REMS that stands for Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy. A little technical, but mm-hmm. just for your listeners to understand that out of the over twenty thousand prescription drugs that are out there, only 76 have this type of an extra requirement. So you know that when the FDA does this, they're they're very concerned about the medicine. And one of the reasons they did it is that they were following this from 2000 up until 2011, and they found that 14 women had died, over 600 had been hospitalized. There were uh, over 58 what's known as ectopic pregnancies. Uh, These are pregnancies that occur outside of the uterine cavity. So it's a very dangerous drug, and it has to be given at the right time in pregnancy. Make sure that the the dates are absolutely accurate, and and that it's incumbent on the prescriber to also rule out these ectopic pregnancies. And you can only do that when you are prescribing in person. And that's why the FDA put an in-person prescribing requirement on the drug. Mm-hmm. Now that it's been removed by this judge, uh, I don't know how anybody can, via telemedicine, document how far along a pregnancy is. I don't know how. There is no way they can document that there is not an abnormal pregnancy, a pregnancy located outside the uterus, which is a life-threatening situation. So unfortunately, this is going to put women's lives at risk that decide to end their pregnancy with this medication. 
Uh, the discussion is so difficult, so tragic. Um, let, let me just ask if the abortion advocates, and I know this is a, a, a victory for them. They're seeing this as a victory, aren't they? Yes, but, you know, it's surprising they haven't made a lot of it because I don't think they want us in the pro-life world to understand that this has happened. Okay. I think they're trying to keep it under the radar. Interesting. So if these abortion advocates are all about life and health of a woman, why do they want fewer safety rules in place? Well, they're using the argument that, that having the in-person requirements in place during this COVID-19 pandemic blocks access. Uh, even though uh, I have healthcare professionals in my family that are, are seeing patients now, uh, I think that's a bogus argument, but they have used that as a cover argument to, to try and, and limit how difficult it is to prescribe this medicine. It's um, very troubling. And when you start doing telemedicine, how how young can, do some of these women show up on the telehealth line looking for an, the abortion pill? There is no uh, age uh, hmm. limit how low you can go. You can give it to a 16-year-old. The major requirements that the FDA was worried about was that it has to be prescribed at less than 10 weeks along in the pregnancy. And again, you know, that was the reason for the in-person requirement for the medicine to be prescribed either at a clinic or a doctor's office or at a hospital. That allowed the healthcare professional to interact directly with the patient, talk to them, do an examination on them, confirm how far along the pregnancy was, confirm whether or not there might be an abnormal pregnancy there. And then if that was the case, then they could do additional testing like uh, ultrasound and that type of thing to to document the age. But you can't do any of those things through telemedicine. And so to me, it shows that the the pro-abortion people are really pushing this medicine out just to, to, to create as many abortions as they can without real concern about the lives of the mothers that are pregnant. Mm, so disturbing. Is this uh, argument that the judge gave on, on this abortion pill, is it similar to the argument on the, Louis, the Louisiana law that, that lost at the Supreme Court? Uh, it's a little different uh, argument. I mean, the, the words of this particular judge were that the in-person requirements to prescribe abortion pills presented a substantial obstacle to patients, making them unconstitutional. Now, the June medical case that you're referring to uh, really talked about the fact that the requirements put in place by the state of Louisiana, again, were too substantial and again, also looking out for the health of the mother, but that presented too great a barrier to abortion and therefore was unconstitutional. So in both cases, in a very similar way, uh, women's lives are being put at greater danger so that access to abortion can be increased. Jeff, what kind of um, support uh, opposition, I guess opposition is the word that I'm looking for, that came from uh, people in government. Did they have a strong showing? Well, I, I don't know the specific, 
specifics other than the two defendants in the case were the FDA and Health and Human Services. And uh, I know that they brought several arguments to the court, uh, all of which were struck down by the judge. The judge did not feel that it was uh, worthwhile. Uh, I will say the judge did not remove all of the FDA um, regulations around prescribing this medication. Uh, so, in other words, a doctor cannot prescribe this medicine unless they have gone through a special process to get additional training and, and worked out a, 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 an agreement with the company that makes the medication. They have to have an understanding of the complications. They have to have an understanding of how to date a pregnancy. They have to have an understanding of how to deal with the potential complications. Those requirements remain in place, but in my mind, by making it a telemedicine type of interaction, it really doesn't help that much because the most important part of pres prescribing and giving this medicine is being able to interact directly with that patient to make sure that her pregnancy is less than 10 weeks and is located inside the uterus. Otherwise, the risk of, an, uh, of complications goes up markedly. Yeah, Jeff, I'm, I have to tell you, I'm getting madder by the minute here, just so you know. I just uh, shot over to the Planned Parenthood website, and it talks about the abortion pill, and it says, before you take the abortion pill, you'll meet with your nurse, doctor, or health uh, center staff to talk about whether abortion is the right decision for you and what your abortion options are, you'll get an exam and lab tests, and you may get an ultrasound to figure out how far into your pregnancy you are. So that sounds like a necessary step. You just can't do this telemedicine, can you? Well, you shouldn't be able to, right, and you couldn't up until this court case. And unfortunately, because this is a federal court, and it's against the FDA, it applies not only to Maryland, it applies to in the entire country now. So, um, so any doctor that has an agreement with the company that makes the abortion pill can now prescribe it via a telemedicine, via a computer screen, without really interacting directly and evaluating and examining a patient. And that, and that is extremely dangerous. Here's the thing I'm expecting. I'm expecting that eventually... There are going to be more women who get very sick, get hospitalized, and possibly even die because this restriction has been dropped. But my other concern is we may never find out about those women because the pro-abortion forces have been so successful in keeping those reports hidden. Mm. And you, we talk about a pregnancy outside the womb. I know that's a life-threatening situation. I guess I'm, I just don't know much about that. I'd be curious to for a little education, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Uh, probably the most common location is within the tube. And so uh, a pregnancy gets, gets trapped in the tube for a variety of reasons, and then it begins to grow there. And, of oh. course, the tube is not very big. And within a very short period of time, it will rupture through the tube and cause internal bleeding. And I, I can't even tell you how many times I've had patients bleeding to death in the ER where I've had them literally stood on their head to keep uh, blood flowing to their head, getting an IV in them, getting them rushed to surgery to get the blood taken out to save their lives. Wow. It is a life-threatening situation. So women that, that may be a distance from the hospital and ha don't have this adequate care, that's where they can die. So if there's a pregnancy in the tube, there's 
there's no chance of that ever evolving into a, a full term baby or how does that work? I guess that's been looked into, Bill, in terms of, you know, can we take a pregnancy from the tube into the uterus? And to date, no one has successfully done that. Okay. Typically, the, the damage would be so great. And, and usually what happens is the, the embryo is really prevented from growing. So what continues to grow is the afterbirth kind of invading into the wall of the tube and then eventually rupturing through. So that, unfortunately, is, is a pregnancy that is doomed. Mm-hmm. All right. I think as a guy, I've asked about as many questions as I can about pregnancy <laughs> with you, Jeff. <laughs> so I'm going to open up the text line if any of you uh, ladies or men, of course, would like to ask uh, Dr. Rarles a question. Uh, you can send a text over to 877-933-2484, 877-933-2484. Dr. Jeff Barrows is my guest. We'll be right back. program. I'm so glad to be talking to Dr. Jeff Barrows. He's from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. He's an OBGYN doctor. He's also the, the, are you the chair again, Jeff? What's that title again? The vice president of bioethics? Senior vice president Senior. of bioethics and public policy. I know it's a mouthful. It is kind of a mouthful, but it's kind of fun to say at parties, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess so. <laughs> and uh, we're talking uh, with Jeff about the uh, abortion pill and how it's gone uh, telemed. You can just now, according to a judge in Maryland, you can uh, have a telemed conference and then get the pill, which is um, completely against what Jeff is saying is has any wisdom whatsoever. Of course, when you have a, an abortion, Jeff, you're 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 ending a life. You're you're killing a, a fetus. How is that? How does that work for you? Well, I've I've been uh, against abortion ever since I became a believer back. Uh, I'll date myself back in the '70s and all through uh, medical school. So mm-hmm. uh, I practiced for many years in a, in a smaller town here in Ohio, and it's interesting. I never made a big deal of my pro-life stance, uh, but patients quickly found out. And so even those that were kind of abortion minded wouldn't come into my, my practice uh, and, and really talk about the abortion because they knew I'd try and talk them out of it. So they would come in after the abortion was done. But I do remember, uh, and I was practicing it at 2000 and when this pill came out and it was known as RU486. Many of your listeners may be familiar with it that way. And I was just devastated that, that they're, uh, they the scientists were successful, unfortunately, in creating this this pill that that is in effect an anti-progesterone. That's one of the major hormones early in pregnancy, and it just uh, starves the pregnancy and and terminates it. Uh, I should say that there are actually two medications involved. One is the mifepristone, and the second is a medication that causes the uterus to go into labor and expel expel the baby and uh, it's it's tragic it's unfortunate and even sadder now is that uh, i think the last i read about 37 percent of all abortions are done with this medication and uh, it's just tragic 
All right. Um, we'd like to take a call from John from St. Paul, Minnesota. John, welcome to the show. Hi, Bill. Thank you for having this man on. It couldn't, it couldn't be more providential. Nice. Because tomorrow morning we're having a prayer meeting at the Brooklyn Park Planned Parenthood. They just started doing satellite telemed abortions by, with the abortion pill. So it's very relevant for us right here in the Twin Cities. And my question for the doc is that, uh, can you talk about abortion pill reversal? Because we're really emphasizing that right now on the sidewalk. Yes, I'm happy to do that. I'm glad you, in fact, asked it. Basically, as I mentioned briefly, what uh, this medication does is it's an anti-progesterone. So uh, the abortion pill reversal is simply the idea of giving very high dose of progesterone to reverse it. And uh, most of the reports that I have read are what we call anecdotal. In other words, it's it's the stories of doctors, but they've been very positive. I, I think that for us in medicine, there's just a couple of questions, and that is, is there any any concern or of a, a birth defect that comes in the baby? Of course, obviously, if we save the baby's life, it's much better, uh, even if it ends up with some type of minor defect. But we're not quite ready to say it's absolutely safe, but I, I would say that if a woman uh, takes the abortion pill and then in a short period of time does regret, uh, then she should contact her pro-life OBGYN and be open to getting um, uh, high doses of the progesterone and, and be followed very care- carefully and closely to make sure that none of these complications I've been talking about will occur. Thank you, John, for that uh, comment and that question. It's a I really appreciate that, and I'll be praying for your uh, event in the morning. Thank you, Bill. God bless you. God bless you. So, yeah, I'll be praying as well for you. Thank you for that, Jeff. So, when when you hear uh, abortion described as healthcare, you know, like the Planned Parenthood billboards say, what do you think? It is not healthcare anymore. Uh, and let's let's go back to the abortion case in Louisiana. If abortion was true health care, then abortion clinics would be treated exactly the same as any other outpatient clinic in the state of Louisiana. And the Supreme Court said, no, it's, it's different. It's different because they don't need to meet the same qualifications. Hmm. Uh, so it, it is not health care. It certainly isn't health care from the perspective of the baby. And it's, it's a service, quote, I'll put that in quotes, it's a service to the mother because she doesn't want that pregnancy. My advice to women that are out there that are maybe contemplating abortion right now, we know now there is such a thing as post-abortion syndrome. There is regret that comes. There is depression. There's increased suicide rates. You will, you will later be sorry more often than not if you go ahead with an abortion. So this is never anything for the woman. There's just all kinds of issues that she is forced to deal with the rest of her life. And, and it's a big part of it is the guilt because a woman knows that's not just a blob of tissue in her uterus. She knows she's just killed a baby. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, it, there's there's need for healing for men as well, right? If if there there is uh, there is an abortion. 
There is because sometimes men will abandon uh, Mm -hmm. wives or girlfriends and and leave them in a position where they feel like they don't have any choice other than having an abortion. Uh, Or even worse, they may be the ones that, that push them into having the abortion because of financial reasons or other inconveniences at that time. Maybe they're in in college together and it's just never not going to work out for them. And so they haven't really thought through what they're doing. I I think it's much easier uh, for patients not to think through and think about this as a a baby. I I remember one patient one time said, I just didn't want to think about it as a baby because then I knew I couldn't do it. And and there was no way I could really have that baby at this time in my life. So they'll just kind of put it in the back of their mind and think of this as a blob of tissue. But eventually it comes around and they come to the recognition of what they've done. So if a woman has an abortion, does that increase her chances of infertility later on? Not all that much of infertility, but one of the things that we're seeing that is increased later on is preterm birth. Because in a lot of abortions, uh, the mechanical abortions especially, um, there is a forced dilatation of the cervix, which is the lower part of the uterus. Mm -hmm. And that weakens that that cervix and it's the cervix that keeps the normal pregnancy in place for that full nine months so we're seeing a marked increase in preterm delivery in women and in fact the more abortions a woman has the more marked the preterm delivery is on that next pregnancy that they end up carrying so if they've had three or four abortions they'll end up having preterm labor as early as 24, 26 weeks again because of that weakened cervix. So that's that's one of the major complications that that the pro-abortion people don't want to talk about, but it's been very well documented in the medical literature. Yeah, and the pro-abortion people also don't want to talk about the post-abortion syndrome very, very often, do they? Not at all. They they don't think it exists. They think that uh, we in the pro-life side are making it up. But uh, all you need to do is start talking to, to patients that have had abortions, if you can get them to talk. It's interesting when I, you know, in practice, I always, on my first visit, would just ask routinely, how many pregnancies have you had? How many abortions? And, and it's just without fail that there's a, a degree of shame. You know, I never had any patient ever say, well, I have abortions. It's, it's, it's inherently a shameful act, not because society so much makes it shameful. In fact, society right now is, 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 is trying to make it a very positive thing. It's, it's an inherent shame in the very act itself. And so, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll regret it later on. It's a very real issue, and uh, they typically don't want to talk about it all that much. Mm-hmm. Jeff, I, we only have a 90 seconds left. Would you just say a, a, a word of prayer for some of the, the mothers who might be in that post-abortive depression and funk? Yeah. Be happy to, Bill. Thank you. Uh, Lord God, I just come before you right now, and I just uh, bring to your throne um, women that may be listening to this program that have had an abortion in the past. I know... There have been millions of abortions since it was legalized in 73. And and Father, I want to just make clear to them that you are ready to forgive them and you have forgiven them. All they need to do is come to you and ask for your forgiveness in the name of Jesus. And it's gone. It's done because Jesus 
died for all of us 2,000 years ago. He, he died on the cross. He spilled his blood for us. He, he did it so that our sins would be placed on him and taken off of us. And I just pray that those women can recognize that they can live uh, fruitful lives as daughters of the Father, of the Heavenly Father. And I just pray that you would give them a sense of your forgiveness, a sense of your joy and your love for them. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. Jeff Barrows, you've been a delight. Thank you so much for saying yes and coming on our show. Bill, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, and thanks for the spaghetti idea. I can't wait to get some tonight. (laughs) I hope it's good. All right, that wraps up our show. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow. Have a good night.